Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Bill, what am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls? You change your number? I mean, I'm not going to be ignored, Bill. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1987 thriller, Fatal Attraction, starring Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, and Ann Archer. Directed by Adrian Lyne, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 59 minutes. Fatal Attraction was nominated for six Oscars, Best Film Editing, Best Writing Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium, Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Best Director, and Best Picture. So, what is this movie about? What's in the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's in the Box. Take it away, Jason. Fatal Attraction is a story too terrifying to resist. A crackling, tension-packed thriller hinged on the triangle of a man, a wife, and a vengeful other woman. Directed by Adrian Lyne and starring Michael Douglas, Glenn Close, and Anne Archer, this sexy, chic, scary box office smash grabs hold early, then tops itself with an unforgettable, nerve-jolting finale. On the other side of drinks, dinner, and a one-night stand lies a terrifying love story. Fatal attraction. One-night stands can be murder. Fatal attraction. Yes. All right. Episode number two of season three, my friend, and we are covering a banger. Oh, yeah. It was hard to figure out a movie to follow up Beverly Hills Cop with, so I figured we'd do a 180 and go with Fatal Attraction. A little counter-programming. No kidding. Wow. I'm excited, man, because I'm just going to say this right up front. This movie is fucking awesome. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Sorry. Spoiler right spoiler there. Spoiler alert. Very beginning. Well, yeah, I should have said spoiler alert before I spoiled it, but that's my take. I'm excited. I can't hold back. That's okay. I'm getting a little, maybe a little obsessive, a little crazy, like Glenn Close right now. I don't know. Are you ready to talk about this movie from 1987? Yes, let's just do that. What are your earliest memories of Fatal Attraction? Jason, as always, start us off. Well, I was 13 years old when this film was released, and I was probably about 14 when I saw it. I'm really not sure if I saw it in the theater. I don't think I did, but I definitely saw this close to the time of its release, or at least as soon as it arrived on cable. Now, at that age, and just be ready, if you know, prepare yourselves. I don't think this is TMI, but anyway, I definitely was tuned in and tuned up by this highly sexually charged movie. When I was coming of age, I'd say my mom did a good job of explaining the birds and bees, and I had my ideas of what the act of quote-unquote making love was supposed to be and or what it was supposed to mean between two people involved in the act. And I had what I'd say a normal exposure to sex and media, such as like Playboy magazines and the Playboy channel, etc. But I didn't see a great deal of sex in mainstream theatrical release movies at that time. Again, I was only 13, 14. So my point is that this movie opened my eyes to a kind of lustful and aggressive Form of sex. That's an early memory for me, Bill Bant. Seeing Michael Douglas and Glenn Close go at it half clothed and with naked buns 
on top of the kitchen counter, I was like, wow, this is messy and physical and crazy. And when I was younger and saw other scenes similar to this, uh, what comes to mind is Bull Durham. You know, when the, like the couple is usually in the kitchen for some reason, they swipe all the plates off the table and they do it on the table or the kitchen floor. And I was like, yeah, you know, you're going to have to clean that mess up afterward, which is going to be a pain in the ass. That's like what my thought process was. But of course... I would learn later that there is a version of sex that is extremely visceral and primal, passionate and animalistic, surrendering to our basic instinct. Did you see what I just did? Yeah, it's very good. Basic instinct. But seriously, it's aggressive. It's about giving in, wanting the dangerous element, which makes it even more attractive. And it's hot and sweaty and can be very, very reckless. The inhibitions go out the window and it's overwhelming and you only want one thing, damn the consequences. But then, yes... You still have to clean up the mess afterward, like we see in this film. So I don't think I'd seen this type of, of sex before in film. That's just a, a huge early memory for me. Now, moving on to other early memories, I'd be remiss if I just didn't mention right away the rabbit. That's right. The rabbit. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Moving on. An early memory for me was that I thought Anne Archer was super hot. Oh, yeah. Spoiler alert. I still do. Oh, my goodness. And I was so confused as a child, as a teenager, I should say, as to why Douglas would cheat on her. What are you doing, man? She's gorgeous. Anyway, I thought that Glenn Close in this movie was fucking insane. I thought her performance was outstanding. But as a 14-year-old, I hated her. I didn't understand her behavior at all. I was just too young to understand what obsession was, that it's a very real thing, and it could cause you to do things you never think you do, and obsession can be completely wild. Now, there's usually some other underlying issues, either mental or emotional instability to go with that obsession, but my point is that I didn't understand obsession, and I thought she was just batshit crazy. Another early memory, I remember not only thinking she was crazy, but she scared me, Bill Bant. Glenn Close was frightening, and it's a testament to her performance in this film. So this movie made me not only think about sex, but the subject of infidelity and what that does to a relationship. As much as I like Michael Douglas as an actor, I knew his character was flawed, and he had made a serious mistake, and how that affected Anne Archer, who portrays his wife in this movie, and how it affected her deeply. And I didn't know how he would recover from it, how they would recover from that. So as a kid, man, the fact that Ann Archer found it within herself to forgive him, I was like trying to understand that. <laughs> I was young, like, he really screwed up. How are you forgiving him? So this is definitely an adult film with adult concepts for a 14-year-old to be exposed to, but I do remember that I liked this movie. I remember thinking that this was just a well-crafted thriller, and it's just a great movie. So those are some of my early memories of Fatal Attraction. What are, what are some of yours, Bill Bant? Uh, before we get into it, I did write down for earliest memories. I wrote down the sex scenes. And like yeah. you, anytime up to that point I had seen sex portrayed in movies, it usually took place in a bed. And the right. fact to see them on the sink, in the elevator, in public, that was, whoa, that was crazy to me. Mm -hmm. I felt the same way. That's definitely an earliest memory for me. I did see this movie in the theater. Looking back, I think this is the first R-rated movie I saw without an adult. And it was me and three of my friends from high school. We went and saw it. It had already been out a couple weeks. And I almost wanted to say it's the same theater I saw Beverly Hills Cop in. So I think I experienced my first two R-rated movies 
was in the same theater. How they let us in, I have no idea. I guess they just didn't care back then. It had been out a couple of weeks and the theater was still pretty packed. And just the reaction of the audience throughout the movie, the scene when Alex slits her wrist, just hearing everybody Mm -hmm. gasp. Alex taking little Ellen on the roller coaster. Everybody in the theater was freaking out. Of course, the climax in the bathroom. People cheered. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I remember those reactions. I remember when I saw this movie the first time, I actually thought Alex faked the whole pregnancy thing because I think I missed the scene later on when Michael Douglas plays Dan tells his coworker that he called the doctor and the doctor said that uh, she was indeed pregnant. But for some reason, that whole movie, I thought, oh, she's just faking the pregnancy. Right. I had the exact same memory and thought. It would be viewings much later that I would realize, oh, no, she was really pregnant. And in fact, in trivia, we'll even get in a little bit deeper on that one also. But um, it was a crazy movie. I think it certainly did have an impact on me with being in relationships. I think that was always in the back of my head that, hey, once I find the one, yeah, you stick with the one. Mm-hmm. Watch mm-hmm. your choices. Everything has consequences. And it's kind of funny, too, because my kids are getting at that age. Right. I talk to them a lot about consequences. I'm like, every decision or action that you make has a consequence. And I'm not saying it's always going to be bad. It could be a positive consequence. But think about when you choose to do something or choose not to do something, how that's going to affect other people or how it might even affect you. So I thought watching this was kind of it's like, wow, it's really reflecting on what's happening at home. Granted, not in a extramarital instance, but just, just you know, any choice <laughs> right. that you make throughout life, it, it has a consequence. Absolutely. And it establishes in the beginning that he has a happy home life, but makes this choice to have an affair with a woman for a weekend and major, major consequences occur. But yeah, I guess it was getting into a little bit of initial thoughts there. But yeah, that's certainly my earliest memories of a fatal attraction. Great stuff, Bill. And I'm glad you brought up the issue of her pregnancy because in my memory, I thought she had faked it as another form of manipulation. Yeah, it was the same thing. And that is not the case in the film. And I was surprised by that. And I had put it in my additional thoughts and questions. I was just going to ask you, do you think she faked it? Even though it is established that Dan says he called the doctor and the doctors told him, congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> It's like, oh, okay, if the doctor said that to him, then she must have been indeed pregnant. And that's something to consider and is part of the tragedy at the end of the film. Although as an audience member, you may be cheering for Alex Forrest's death at the end of the film. Then you think back on the fact that she was pregnant. It is even more disturbing and upsetting um, and bothersome. So, and then I also like the fact that you brought up this idea of, you know, when we're, we're younger, we look at things a little bit more black and white. It's simply that we are more innocent or hopefully we were more innocent at that age. This is the beginning of the journey as, as human beings, the journey of innocence to experience. And then things were just a lot more black and white. When you think about how we viewed relationships back then, boyfriend, girlfriend relationship, being in a relationship with a significant other, and then what marriage means. And depending on your upbringing, you may view it as something very sacred. So the idea of infidelity was not looked upon favorably. And when I saw this movie, it was the same kind of thing. It's like, wow, this is bad. He's bad. Everybody's bad, <laughs> except for Ann Archer and the daughter. 
Anyway, you talk about how your actions have consequences, and I may get into that as well with my initial thoughts, because when you're talking, this is a heavy movie because it causes you to think about, as we get older, we lie. We can be deceitful. We start building up a cache of secrets, and secrets can be very corrosive, and they not only eat away at you, but then they can extend outward and affect those around you again consequences so we can just move right into initial thoughts if you're ready keep going jason yeah let's talk a little bit about how this film affected us today and as usual i'll start off with a quick look at a couple of our main players and where they were at in the 80s of course we have the one and only michael douglas love this guy playing the role of dan gallagher new york lawyer we of course know him from romancing the stone Funny enough, our second pod ever. And now we're on our second pod in the third season with Michael Douglas. So Romancing the Stone was in 84. He did the sequel, Jewel of the Nile, in 85. He played the role of Zack in a chorus line in 85 as well. And then he does this fatal attraction. And then it was immediately followed up by probably his most famous role as Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. Yes, which was also released in 87. And then one of my cult favorites, Black Rain in 89. Oh, yeah. And every time I think of Black Rain, I immediately see that poster of him with the glasses on sitting on the bike. And uh, The War of the Roses then comes out in 89 as well. So pretty solid 80s for Michael Douglas. He's a two-time Academy Award winner. He won one Academy Award as a producer for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest back in 1975. I believe the Oscars were probably in 76, but the film was in 75. He won his second Oscar for Best Actor for, yes, Gordon Gecko from Wall Street. Next, we have Glenn Close, who plays the role of Alex Forrest. Her notables from the 80s include The World According to Garvin, 82, The Big Chill in 83, The Natural in 84, Jagged Edge in 85, and then she lands this in 87, and then goes on to do Dangerous Liaisons in 88. Close has been nominated eight times for an Academy Award, holding the record for the most nominations in an acting category without a win, tied with Peter O'Toole. She was nominated for Best Actress for this role as Alex Forrest, but lost out to Cher and Moonstruck. There you go. So getting into my initial thoughts of this film, as you know, Bill Bant, I'm always a big fan of women with these shortened names that appear to be men's names, like Sam or Joe or Sean. And usually I like Alex, but after watching this movie again, oh my goodness. Hey, uh. Sometimes it does just take a look, man. It's instant sexual attraction and tension between Douglas and Glenn Close in this movie. Wow. It is awesome. They are in it. Testament to their performances. It's that brief encounter, the first time Michael Douglas and Glenn Close exchange words at the bar, at the Japanese book signing party in the beginning of the film. It is immediate attraction. Initial thought, you know, I'm a big fan of the setup. It's a smart setup. You have Dan Gallagher, played by Michael Douglas, being a lawyer in New York City. But in this particular case, he's a lawyer for this book publisher, which Alex Forrest, played by Glenn Close, is the editor. So there's a legal issue regarding a particular book, which happens to be about a woman who's having an affair with a politician. Fun foreshadowing there, a woman having an affair. But now, of course, we know this is going to be about a man having an affair, but still... The setup is all there. Some of it is very much on the nose, but it's kind of fun in a way. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. They're not fooling around. We know what they're telling you right up. It's like, this is what the movie's about. I thought it was fun. 
hey, man, here's an initial thought. I had completely forgotten how the conversation went between Dan Gallagher and Glenn Close as Alex Forrest, their actual real first conversation, which takes place in a restaurant. It's so honest and forthright. And we just mentioned the looks, the looks that are exchanged because they openly discuss what is about to happen. They know that they're attracted to one another and they know that they are going to uh, have sex. That's it. There's an affair around the corner and they're almost upon it. And everything about that scene, man, the direction of the scene, the haze in the restaurant. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later. It's just the look of this film. Everything is sultry and sexual and sensual and dangerous and tension filled. It's wonderful. But yeah, that initial conversation between Gallagher and Forrest is amazing. I always love the obvious symbolic imagery representing a sexual situation, i.e. the boiling pot in this instance or kettle in this instance. When we had that uh, the first sexual encounter, of course, the affair ensues what I like to call sex on a sink between Douglas and Close. Yeah. And of course, you know, they hit the bed and then it cuts to a boiling kettle. And it's like, oh, there's the shot that represents either the climax or the heat of the scene or the steamy nature of the scene. It's always represent, you know, there's always some sort of symbolic oh, yeah. imagery or representation. You know, like in comedies, sometimes it's like a rocket taking a train off, yeah. going through a tunnel or the rocket shaking. Off. Yes, that's good. That's good. Hey, here's an thought. Where is Alex's apartment? Wherever it is, it looks awesome. It's like hidden down an alley as if it's somewhere near the meatpacking district. I'm assuming you, you, they walk out at some point. There's people literally like packing meat. This is New York after all. It's kind of representative of who she is, I was thinking, like mysterious and dangerous, secluded, isolated, which made me think outside of the initial scene at the Japanese book signing party, we only see her in scenes where either she's isolated in her apartment or somehow in connection to him. Either she's with him or by her herself. We do not see her having any like real social life as her focus really solely lies upon him. That's something that hit me. Glenn Close, just the simple casting of Glenn Close. Perfection. Especially because of, if you will get into it in the, the trivia, because she almost was not chosen for this role. She's not too beautiful, meaning I think Glenn Close is a beautiful woman in all respects, but not model beautiful. And she just initially exudes such fun and freedom and pure sexuality and then flips so easily to fearsome rage and pure sadness and loathing. It's Glenn Close. Just an immense talent. So much going on behind the eyes for her. Definitely. She does a lot of what I call eye acting. Big time. And it's so impressive. It's all right behind her eyes. And then she'll do something with her mouth, which is amazing. It's with the smile. It's whether it's showing teeth or not, grinning. Man, so much going on in her face and her eyes. I love this moment, you know, the fact like there's just a lot of smart writing in this. Love that Ann Archer mentions that she has leftover spaghetti sauce for her husband, Dan, for him to eat when he gets home from work. And then later on, as he's having the affair with Alex, she's making him fresh spaghetti. Right. Just these little things is kind of like, wow, this is just all subliminal, subtextual kind of things, uh, subconscious things going on. And of course, she's playing Madame Butterfly. And if you know anything about that opera, it's about unrequited love that ends in suicide slash tragedy. So the way this movie looks is incredible. I mentioned before, there's a lot of haze and it's just the way it's shot and the way it's lit is stunning. I wish more movies looked like that today, but maybe it's more just a sign of the 80s. 
This movie's well-paced, well-written. Great example of continuing to raise the stakes, increase the tension throughout. I mean, talk about escalating situations. Alex taking more and more extreme measures to insert herself into Dan's life. Dan, just more scenes as he's with his loving family and how he appreciates his family even more now that the situation is more dire and it's a situation he must protect. But I mentioned earlier, yes, the deception and the lies and how you can't escape it eventually. And this movie is hard to watch in moments. It's very awkward. It's very dramatic. But there's something very human and real and dark underneath it all, which is very relatable as a human because we are susceptible and vulnerable to lies and secrets and unraveling, and it's upsetting. And that's where we're at now, as I am now, as an adult watching this film. So that's revelatory. Uh, yeah, I'll save the rest for later, but those are some initial thoughts. How about you, Bill Bant? So my initial thoughts, just kudos to Glenn Close for her performance in this movie. I think this is one of the best against type movies of all time, because you mentioned you know, her movies before there. World According to Garp, The Big Chill, The Natural. And to go from that to this, mm-hmm. incredible about face. This is something that you would not expect her to do. I like that you mentioned her attractiveness. I think what makes her so attractive in this movie is her confidence. She has extreme confidence in that first scene when she meets with uh, Dan, Michael Douglas. And I think that's what makes yep, her attractive it. to the other men throughout the film. Because she she's there in that party scene and you can tell Guy's eyes are wandering to see who this woman is because she stands out. And I think it is because of her confidence. I'd like that in the movie, we didn't explore too much of Alex's past. And I'd like the fact that you brought up that, yeah, she most of the time she's in her apartment and we don't see what she kind of does outside of. Like we we know what her job is, but we don't really know her day to day. I'm glad we didn't have to find out. We didn't have Dan explore her background and find out about ex-boyfriends or if she was married in the past Mm -hmm. or her coworkers think she's psychotic and crazy things she's done with them we didn't need to know any of that more worried about the here and now and i know a lot of times we always talk about yeah we need more background or story this you did not need it and i'm glad they kept it away totally agree and just once again with what i just mentioned in the beginning for earliest memories it's just the consequences here's a situation to the extreme that plays out consequences to your actions especially during that time period and the writer itself said this is not like an allegory for the aids epidemic but people who were watching it could probably think that also it was a very scary time to be promiscuous with other people because of this disease that we didn't quite have our hands on yet so i think that even made it a little bit scarier too it's you're having an affair with someone you don't know anything about her and it's such an intimate setting that you share with this person so what happens next and it's not Mm -hmm. good it's so tension filled and even watching it now all these years later it's still I mean, that stuff is still relevant today, which I kind of like. It is a story you could, if you remade this, there's so little that you would need to change because the basic story Mm -hmm. is all there. And that's what I loved about it, too. It's a burner, man. It's certainly a burner. And and it's cool, too, because it's really just focusing on three actors. You know, you have Michael Douglas, Mm -hmm. Glenn Close, and Ann Archer. And there's other people in there, but you don't really need them. And it's really just about these three and how it affects all three of them. Yeah, I have to agree with you too, Ann Archer. I didn't see it back then, but certainly watched it this time. I was like, man, she was smoking. Oh, yeah. When you see people have affairs and you see the person they're having an affair with and they're not quite as attractive and you're kind of like, why'd you do that? And this is almost one of those instances. I agree 100%. 
And you learn very quickly, or I have learned in my personal experience, that the cosmetics, the the looks really are not everything, especially when it comes to sexual attraction. I have been extremely sexually attracted to women that may objectively, by society standards, not be the most, quote unquote, beautiful women. But there's just something about them that draws me in. For me, often it's a sense of humor. It could be a way a woman, like you said, confidence, a way a woman carries herself, a way that a woman knows exactly what she wants and goes right after it, a way that a woman can be persistent in being pursued in a certain way feels great. So it's just a fascinating thing. And to get back to, you know, we talk about from a filmmaking standpoint, and I just don't want to gloss over this because I was trying to get through my initial thoughts, is the fact that this film, is, it should be taught in class. I mean, this is one of those that you just watch and go, man, from the direction to the performances, to the lighting, to the sound design, to the editing, editing, editing. You understand why this was nominated for how many, Bill? Six Academy Awards? Yep. Hell yeah, it was. Break down some of these scenes and look at the cuts and how it was shot is so smart. <laughs> it's like, because it really is impactful. It really, what's the word? It exudes, it, it just draws a such a visceral reaction just from watching it. It's really intense. We'll probably get into that when we break down some of our favorite scenes here coming up. But I, yeah, I just wanted to talk about it. The editing, especially, because it is pretty brilliant. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of your favorite scenes or moments from Fatal Attraction? I'm going to start off with a quick moment. It's funny, man. Maurice Jarre did the score for this film. Mm -hmm. He's one of the greats. And the music doesn't come into this film for about a half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> but what it does, it's great because this is my first favorite moment is a music cue. And it happens at a point in the film where we have Dan Gallagher, who is now in the midst of a weekend affair with Alex Forrest. And she has him meet her at a park and they're with his dog and they're running about and they're now becoming physically flirtatious and kind of pawing at each other, no pun intended, and tackling each one another and then Michael Douglas feigns a heart attack and she comes over to him thinking it could be quite serious because he seems to be only like half conscious. And then he, of course, sits up and laughs and she's like, that's not funny. My father died of a heart attack. And he's like, oh, my God, I didn't know that, of course, and I'm sorry. And she's like, no, I'm just kidding. And he's like, oh, that's kind of a dark thing to be kidding about. And right at that moment... There is a very specific music cue. It's kind of a, like, I believe it's like a dark or a low string that comes in. And it's just a great cue because that's the first moment. You know what's going on here is quote unquote wrong, that they shouldn't be having an affair. It could lead to trouble. But we don't understand the depths of Alex Forrest's character yet. And this is the first literal cue as to, uh-oh, something's off with Alex. I just loved it. The cue's a little bit obvious and like I said, kind of on the nose. But as soon as she makes that joke and you see Michael Douglas's reaction to like, oh, that's a weird thing to joke about. And then she's like, oh, yeah, no, he's fine. He's alive. And he's like, and then that, mm, this music kind of comes in. Oh, that's cool. That's my first favorite moment. I liked it. This presence. Yeah. Presence of a darkness within her. I actually almost put that down as one of my 
moments also. I have to admit, it was hard coming up with scenes or moments for this film because I didn't want to necessarily rehash all the iconic ones and wanted to pick some other things out. And this one is a little bit iconic, but I, I wanted to put it in there. And it's a moment. And... It's when Alex is listening to Madame Butterfly by herself. Great At call. this point in the movie, they've had the affair and Dan's trying to cut it off and Alex won't leave him alone. And then Alex shows up at his office and it's like, oh shit. But she's like, you know what? Peace offering. I'm sorry. The way I've acted. Madame Butterfly is playing in a couple of weeks. Would you like to go with me? Just strictly as friends. Let's just move on. And even then... Dan turns her down. He's like, you know what? I don't think that's a good idea. Let's just go our separate ways. I appreciate you coming over to apologize. I'm glad we can move on with hard lives. That's what we think, or that's what Dan thinks is going to happen, but oh no. So we hear Madam Butterfly playing in her apartment, and we see the tickets to the show, and we see that they're not been used. So she bought the tickets, mm-hmm. and she did not go to the show, and slowly pans across her apartment, and it intercuts with Dan, with his coworker, and they're all playing bowling, and they're all having a great time. And then it just shows Alex in the apartment under a lamp, and she's just turning it on and off. And there you go, the, the eye acting right there, the face acting. Mm-hmm. Just by looking at her, you're like, holy shit, things are about to kick into high gear. And we as an audience don't realize what this next gear is going to be. And it's going to be really scary. Things are going to get batshit fucking crazy. And it all starts right here. And it's just a great moment by her. She says nothing. She's just lying there. It's just turning the light on and off. But everything is in her face. And it's fantastic. And the fact it's just contrasting with Dan thinking, I'm out of the situation. My life's moving on. Great. Yeah, he doesn't know what's coming around the corner. It's a great moment. I I love it. I, I can't believe I didn't think about putting this in my favorite moments and or scenes. I thank you because it is brilliant. What a great idea, concept. Everything about this, again, this is the brilliance in the editing and the intercutting. That slow push in on her, she's just the flick of the light on, off, on, off, as if that is literally and symbolically who she is. She could change at the flick of a switch. Yep. She has a certain type of obsession and disorder now that she could literally go off at any moment or be the most docile, sweet creature in another moment. You just don't know what you're going to get. She is unpredictable and very dangerous. And you're right. Now it's what happens next. Is she planning something? It's fascinating to watch Glenn Close's face because you can't not wonder what's going on behind her eyes. What's going on in her head? I actually felt some sympathy for a character in the moment where she had built up in her head and her heart such love, and now which has turned to obsession for the character of Dan Gallagher, that she's now feeling tremendous like loss and separation anxiety and all these things that she's feeling. And when she's sitting there so despondent, and you see the mascara has run, so she's been crying apparently, but she does have a crazed look about her. But I also felt sympathy because. It's intercut with Dan having such fun with his wife and they're drinking beers and they're bowling and they're just loving life 
was that happening in her mind? Like, was she imagining that's what he was doing? If you've ever been broken up with and you're just sitting home alone and you're wondering where your ex-significant other is and you start having these dark fantasies of she's probably out there with another guy having the time of her life and I'm just sitting home alone and this is my life is horrible. And that's where I was like, man, that's just an awful place to be. Again, just the turning the light on and then off and on and off is just like, hey, creepy, man. It's a dark, dark place. Scary. Yep. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, she's in a dark place. Glad you called that out, man. So my first favorite scene is what I'm calling Dan's first attempt at leaving Alex. Oh, boy. <laughs> so this is most definitely an iconic scene. Oh, definitely. So thus far, and maybe this will help the listeners out there that haven't seen this film, Fatal Attraction, we know that Dan Gallagher is a seemingly loving husband to Beth Gallagher, Ann Archer, and he is a loving father to their six-year-old daughter, Ellen Gallagher. He is a successful lawyer in New York City, but as luck would have it, he meets Alex Forrest at the party I'd mentioned earlier, and there's the instant attraction, and then later meets her again at an office meeting because she's the editor for a book publisher that Dan's law firm is representing in a potential upcoming case. We know that Dan's wife, Beth, is out of town for the weekend with their daughter, and when Dan and Alex leave their office meeting, they go for a drink. And well, the sparks fly in the restaurant in their conversation. It's a very understated and very sexy forthright conversation. Cut to sex on a sink. <laughs> the affair begins. Dan and Alex are having a one-night affair, or so Dan thinks. Cut to the following day, which is Sunday, and Alex calls Dan and convinces him to come over, thus in essence turning this into a weekend affair. And they go out to the park with his dog, and that's that one moment I mentioned with the music cue, and then go back to her apartment and enjoy some of her homemade spaghetti while listening to Madame Butterfly. The conversation starts to get a little serious when over dinner and wine, Alex starts asking Dan about his wife and his family and says to Dan, I just want to know where I stand, which makes Dan a little uneasy because his understanding was that this was going to be a one-time thing. They still do have sex afterward, and then Dan decides he needs to leave. Alex doesn't care for this at all. She makes a very physical attempt at trying to make him stay by almost tearing his shirt off and kind of slapping him. And now Dan is getting dressed hurriedly while they discuss the misunderstanding between them. Alex feels used in this moment. She thinks he's being selfish, but he explains once again that he's married. And she feels like he's justifying is leaving her. And she tells him she'd respect him more if he just told her to fuck off. So he does. And then she suddenly kicks him, yelling at him to get out. And you have to understand, like, as a viewer, you're watching this and you're watching her go from one extreme to the other. You understand she's upset. So it's not like an extreme extreme to another extreme, but it's still like she snaps oh, yeah. and just kicks him. It's an emotional swing and it's jarring. So then Dan is about to leave when Alex appears in the kitchen and is now speaking in a sweet and almost meek voice and asks Dan to come over and say goodbye nicely. As he approaches her, she has her hands behind her back. And this is wonderful because as an audience, we assume she's cray-cray and must have a knife or something else in her hands and she's going to attack him with it. So he approaches her and she begins crying and he tries to console her when she reaches up to his face and starts kissing him forcibly. And he pushes her away while noticing her hands feel wet. And then we see that his face is covered in blood. 
and he looks down and see that her hands were covered in blood because she has sliced her wrists. It's fucking intense. The music is going off, and we're like, what is happening? Fortunately, the cuts aren't too deep, and Dan manages to bandage her up, and now he spends the night with her to make sure she's okay. And, of course, we know, well, that ploy worked. She manipulated him. She got him to stay one more night. Bottom line here... And I'm borrowing this acronym I heard on a true crime podcast. Shout out to Anatomy of Murder. The BRFs, big red flags, appear here (laughs) in a sudden and chaotic and angry fashion. We think she's holding the knife behind her back. She's cut her wrist. I mean, it's in Glenn Close is so great in this. She's so unpredictable. And now we're like, oh, shit, she's unstable. Dan could have a serious, serious problem here. But the point is, everything in this is believable. This is what I was thinking about. It's not goofy. It's not hokey. It's authentic. It's awkward to watch, and it's scary. This scene could, in less capable hands, be very bad. Yes. But no, (laughs) you're totally right on that fact. But man, they pull it off. Yeah, that's one of those scenes I remember in the theater when you see her and her hands are behind and everyone's, you hear everyone in the audience is kind of murmuring like, oh my God, what's she got in her hand? Oh, shit. And when her hands come up, and you see the some of the blood trickling between her finger. I mean, Just everybody was gasping. Right, but you can see it. It's like, I remember that. And I remember like, oh my, what the hell? I didn't know where the blood was coming from. And then his just reacts like, like he just freaks. That's oh, a great reaction. Yeah, it is. It really sells it. Yeah, it's a pretty good. Yeah, it's definitely one of the iconic scenes of the film. Just call on that. All right, so for me, moving forward, um, another scene that it's a really good scene, but I don't think it's one of the iconic scenes that people would point out, but I love it. Alex comes to Dan's apartment. Definitely. So the Campbells, they live in an apartment in New York, and Beth wants to move out suburbia, and they find a house that they're going to buy, but they got to sell their apartment. And at this point, Alex has kind of gone batshit crazy. She keeps calling Dan and Dan either ignores her. And then he gets to the point where he changes his phone number. So Alex finds out that they're selling their apartment and Dan's coming home from work and he opens the door and he's about to close the door and he hears Alex talking to his wife in the apartment. And Mm. you're like, holy shit. What is about to go down? And Dan slowly shuts the door and he just composes himself because all this shit's got to be racing into your head. Like, why is she here? What is she going to do? Obviously, Alex has not told Beth what has gone down, but is her plan to do it when he comes home? And he comes into the room and Beth introduces Alex to Dan. And there's this great moment where Alex puts out her hand to shake and Dan looks down and you can see the scar on her wrist and he's almost mm-hmm. looking at it like it's, it's a giveaway. Like if Beth saw it, that she would know that something happened, even though she has no idea what's happened, what's been going wrong with the two of them. And then Alex plays it off like, oh, yeah, I think we've met before. And I think it was at that party. And first Dan tries to deny it. And then both Dan and Beth were at that party also. And Beth's like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, we were at that party too, right? So Dan's like, oh, yeah, we did meet each other. And then, you know, Alex's like, oh, you're moving. going to be moving to Suburban. You're just like, oh, shit, you think she, he can get away and it's not going to happen. There's just so much tension in that scene. And you almost feel frozen. You don't know what to do. Yeah. What Dan has done is wrong. But at the same time, you don't want him to get busted in this manner. 
because at the same time, you're just thinking, why is she there? Why is she doing this? What What is she trying to accomplish by coming to the house? I think there's just mm-hmm. so many emotions that just go into this scene. And just even the contrast of there's a, like a two shot of Alex and Beth standing next to each other and Beth's all like happy. And Alex just kind of is just like almost looking through Dan like you bastard. It's like you're, there's no way you're escaping me until you right fulfill your responsibilities because dan finds out that alex is pregnant with the child and dan's like i don't want to have anything to do with it but she wants to make sure that he's involved so it's just all this stuff and this just a little it's like three minutes long but it's just so filled with tension and then she just eventually just leaves but it's just that i got you you can't get away no matter what you try Mm -hmm. oh yeah it just makes a hair stand kind of moment i love it great call One more phenomenal scene when she shakes his hand and you see the scar on her wrist, but then she actually extends her grasp a little bit long. Like it's that uncomfortable. She's holding onto his hand just for one second too long. Mm -hmm. She really has inserted herself into his life at this point. And you're right. She's an unstoppable force. She is proving that she is here to stay and there's nothing he can do about it. She will find a way. And it's brutal because she's in complete control and he's helpless and he has to react in the moment. Like you said, it's just a great point because he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know what she said to Beth, but then he figures out she probably hasn't said anything to Beth. Obviously, it's all about just buying the apartment. That's the ruse here that she's performing. And he just has to kind of go with it. And he just stands there kind of dumbfounded. Great call, man. I, I don't know. You said it all, man. It was, it's a, it's great. You're watching it going, oh, this is the worst. Yeah. This is so uncomfortable. Yeah, it's almost like you should be busted for what you did, but you don't want him to be busted yet. Right. You should face those consequences, but we don't want you to face the consequences just yet. Right. It's This isn't the moment and not like that. Ugh, great stuff, man. Uh, my, I have another moment. It's when Alex tries to call Dan, but his number is now disconnected. Oh, yeah, it's a good one. It's fantastic because she's been trying to call him and he either hasn't been home, but she calls or Beth will answer the phone and she doesn't speak and then just hangs up. So that's super awkward. She's been calling the office repeatedly. Dan has been ignoring her or gets on the phone with her at least once and says, stop calling me. So finally, back in the day, you couldn't block their number. So he he just changes his number. Well, that's how you do that. And so she tries calling him. She's at home in her apartment on her bed. And uh, she finds out that is it's been disconnected. And she talks to the operator asking for Dan's new number. But the operator says he's not allowed to give out that information. And she yells, fuck you. And we hear him reply, oh, my place or yours? <laughs> if you're not paying attention, it'll get by. I missed it. I went back and I played it like three times. Because I was like, did I just hear that? Or did he say, my place or yours? So yeah, she gets on the phone, tries to call Dan, and then you get the, the oh, this number has been is no longer in service or whatever the message is. And then she actually calls the operator saying, what's up? And he's like, yeah, it's been disconnected. And she's like, fuck you. And you hear him say, oh, my place or yours? Like really sassy. <laughs> but that's my uh, favorite moment there. That is a good scene. Um, so for me, I have another moment watching this time. I actually kind of forgot this happened in the movie, but I found it really interesting. Alex is going over the top with her trying to chase after Dan. And now she's just getting outright angry. And Dan goes, leaves work, goes to get his car. 
and sees that basically, I think it's like acid has been poured all over the, the hood. Yes. So now he has to take another car home. And when he's going home, he got a package from his secretary and he opens it up and there's a cassette inside. And the cassette's from Alex. And he's playing the cassette while he's driving home. And Alex is basically calling him every name in the book. Up to this point, she's kind of professed her love for Dan and wants Dan to be a part of her life. She wants them to be together and Dan keeps pushing her away. I'm married. This is over. We're done. So now she's just gone to 180 and just said, you know, you're a dick and all this other stuff. Some of the stuff I don't want to repeat. When he's listening to this, Alex is now following him to his new home. And Dan gets home and bought a bunny for Ellen. He's bringing it into the house and he's showing his wife and daughter the bunny. And you see Alex come onto the property and she's on the front lawn, kind of on like a hill that's kind of looking down into the living room. And she's watching the reaction of Ellen getting this bunny and seeing a happy family moment. Part of it could be because she's pregnant, but I think it's because she is so disgusted to see Dan in this moment, having this moment with someone else that is not her. She vomits vomits and on his front lawn into the bushes this is how much this has affected her that it's literally making her sick yeah and i thought that was just a great moment one of those moments i didn't remember in the movie but when i watched it this time i was like damn that's tough great moment and i had forgotten completely about it when i saw the movie again today yeah she's full-on stalking yep. it's not like that's a surprise into itself but i don't re- i didn't remember that she actually is outside of his house on the lawn, looking through the window at the family scene. And it's a great moment. I mean, she's looking right at her living nightmare in a way, but also her dream. That's her dream. That's her obsession. That's everything she wants and she can't have. And it makes her sick to her stomach. And you see just how much it's affected her on such a deep level that it would cause her to be nauseous. Right. And that's not good. Obviously, it's not good that she's stalking him, but it made me think too. What we, you know, you brought up the great scene previous when she actually goes over to his apartment and talks with Beth, and she portrays a potential buyer of the apartment. But that's a tactic also to get his phone number, his new number, right. which she does. Like she's no dummy. Right. She's great, man. I mean, she's smart. And she's almost checking out the competition. Absolutely. There's a lot going on in every scene. Mm-hmm. There's so many levels happening. And yeah, and the fact that she then, once she destroys his Volvo and then follows him as he gets the rental car and follows him out to the country. And you're, I was the same way. I was like, oh, crap. Now she knows where he lives, his, where his new house is. And that's no bueno. But yeah, that's disturbing at night when she is outside the window watching them. Always effective. Always effective when the villain's outside the window looking in. Oh, yeah. Um, So my second favorite scene is what I am just calling Alex Kidnaps Ellen. Oh, man. This is a rough one. Yeah. A lot's happened up to this point. I think we've covered a lot of it, actually. But things with Alex have escalated extremely to the boiling point. Literally. Where Dan now has had no choice but to tell his wife, Beth, that he had an affair with Alex and that she's pregnant. Beth kicks him out of their new house and Dan goes to stay in a hotel for the time being. Meanwhile, soon after we see Beth going to pick up their six-year-old daughter, Ellen, at school. Well, Beth soon learns that Ellen 
is not at school, Beth begins to panic because the other mothers and teachers and kids are saying that Ellen left already, but how and with whom? Who does she leave with? We know, of course, that Beth knows that Alex is somewhere out there and is nuts and she's a real threat. And that's why she says, you know, call the police. Now, here comes some really great editing. Beth hops into her car and starts driving home, looking everywhere for Ellen. She's frantic. And this is intercut with what we now see is, yes, Alex is walking with Ellen on the boardwalk and going to the amusement park. And that's cut back and forth between Beth running through her house, looking for Ellen, screaming for Ellen, cut back to Alex, who's now on a roller coaster at the park with Ellen, cut back to Beth driving frantically, almost hitting people crossing the street and and screaming. And by the way, when it cuts back and forth, here's the sound design, which is brilliant within the editing, is that when it cuts to Alex and Ellen, all you hear is the ambient noise of the park and the surrounding nature sounds and things like that versus when it cuts to Beth, who's frantic and screaming in the car and she's crying, you hear the high-pitched score by Maurice Jarre. You hear the ee- and it's just like, oh my God, <laughs> it's like, what? like you really, really feel for Beth in the moment. And then it goes to just pure creepy, quiet noises and now roller coaster noises with Alex and Ellen on the roller coaster. Now there's a great cut where Beth, again, is driving frantically and she almost hits those people crossing the street and she screams and it immediately cuts to Ellen on the roller coaster screaming. So everything matches, like everything is connected and it goes back to Beth driving. And at this time, she's about to rear end a vehicle at a stoplight. And that's cut back and forth between now Alex and Ellen on the roller coaster. And Alex just does this really like looks over kind of lovingly, but in the most creepy way over to Ellen while they're going up on the roller coaster. You hear the noise, you know, that supremely loud noise a roller coaster makes especially like on a a wooden roller coaster when you're going up the huge incline that really loud noise that's intercut with beth about to rear end a vehicle because she's not paying attention she's looking around for her daughter on the street Ugh, and yeah beth rear ends the vehicle and gets into a car accident it's chaotic The editing back and forth between the two scenes is brilliant. It's awful. But what's really awful is after Beth has had the car accident, we see Alex dropping Ellen off at her home. And as Ellen's getting out of the car, Alex stops her and asks her for a kiss on the cheek. It's fucking crazy. Yep. But it's not crazy if you think about it because Alex just wants to feel like part of the family and she wants any signs of affection she can get. She's really inserting herself here but it's dark man asking the little six-year-old kid that she's just met and taken to the amusement park and she's this person that ellen doesn't know from adam and asks her for a kiss on her cheek it's just creepy and terrible it's awful it's one of those scenes again you could watch in film class and just simply study and break down yeah from a technical perspective this scene was such a freak out it's another one the whole audience is going crazy i remember because why does alex have ellen what the hell are they going to do? And even the fact they're at the amusement park together, you're still thinking, oh my God, what is she going to do with this child who has no idea what is going on in the grand scheme of things? You're just terrified. You can't, in a way, you almost can't enjoy the moment because you're so worried about this little girl. Yeah. And then, especially now looking back on the scene, because technology wise, it's not like Beth can call Dan on the cell and say, Ellen's missing. 
her number one goal is just to find her daughter at all costs. And she's just frantically looking around. She doesn't have time to stop and grab a phone and call him. What is he going to do anyway? How are they going to contact other people? So she's really on her own. I mean, the chances of her finding her daughter are slim. And we as an audience think, yeah, she's not going to see her daughter again. Alex is going to do something to her. And the fact that the scene ends with Beth getting into an accident and Alex is dropping her back off in front of the house, an empty house, it's so creepy. Yeah, it's a right. tough one. Yeah. Ugh. That was definitely a freak out moment. Yeah. it's. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the technology aspect because there are no cell phones at this time. And I almost put this in complaints, but I totally understood then when thinking about it, when Beth is so frantic looking for Ellen, I was like, well, why hasn't she called her husband? Why, why hasn't she called the police? But she doesn't have a phone with her. And her first instinct and only instinct is to immediately get on the road and look for her daughter. Nothing else matters. And what is Dan going to do anyway? He's in a hotel somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's not like he's close by. She needs to get out and start searching for her daughter. And that's all that matters. But yeah, limited by technology at that time. Yeah, just know, thinking no- even picking Ellen up from school. I mean, now when I got to pick up her kids from school... Like, give me the tablet and I got to sign off on it and all this oh, stuff. Oh, sure. You didn't do that back then. It's just like, hey, that's my kid. Let's go. All right. See you later. I've done that. Yeah. I've had to go, whether it's my niece or nephew or go into a school, you get the name tag, you got to sign in, you got to, sometimes you provide identification, has to match the name on the sheet, like somebody or somebody has to have put you on a Correct. list previous so that when you show up, you can say, yeah, I'm on the visitor list. Right. Yeah. The school has no clue, yeah. which, yeah, now you'd be like, what the hell? But then- all right. Different times. It was the 80s, folks. Yeah, that's definitely something you'd have to fix <laughs> if they had to remake the movie. Mm-hmm. Just to make like a fake ID, eye scan, and fingerprint match. That would be fun to figure out for the, the remake, though. Right. How does she pick up Ellen after school? Yeah, I don't know. Any other Caesar moments? I do have one more okay. scene. I'll try to get through it as quickly as possible. I call it Dan Breaks In and Attacks Alex. This is an amazing scene. It's following the kidnapping of his daughter. So this is basically the next scene. It's not quite. Anyway, this is after Dan's wife's car accident, Beth's car accident. Dan visits Beth in the hospital. Then it's time to pay Alex a visit. He's at his breaking point because his daughter was kidnapped. His wife was in a car accident. So Dan goes to Alex's apartment. She answers the door and he busts his way in through the chain lock. And what follows is an incredibly physical and incredibly choreographed and incredibly violent chase slash fight scene. There are absolutely no words spoken in this scene. It's all action. It's brilliant. There's tackling, screaming, glass breaking, kicking, flailing, slamming, and finally Dan gets Alex on the ground and begins choking her. But eventually his better sense comes over him. He lets her go. Alex is over the sink coughing and trying to get some water. Dan is trying to regain his composure when suddenly Alex comes at him in a total fucking rage with a kitchen knife. Oh man, it's incredible. Oh yeah. <laughs> the, the editing, the screaming. Ah, she just goes after him. It's just insanity. Dan somehow dodges her, manages to get the knife away, then backs off and slowly places the knife down on the counter. And here's the actual best moment of the scene, in my opinion. Again, no words spoken. They're both speechless and feeling so many different emotions, whether it's being despondent, despair, puzzlements, shock, sadness, loss, exhaustion. But the money shot is a slow pullout on Glenn Close as she is frazzled and undone and has this sad smile on her face while watching Dan back away and leave. It's a fucking amazing sequence and well choreographed, as I mentioned. The editing is spectacular. 
Some of the intercut shots here in the scene are literally blurs, but it gives the scene such a speed and force that you almost feel the impact as a viewer. The scene's a tornado. It's amazing. My only question would be, if that was me, would I have been able to finish the job and choke her out? Mm -hmm. In all honesty, no. I would have done the same thing. I would have let her go. That's what kept running through my mind watching this. was like, could I have done it? Can I have killed her? Yeah, probably not. There's a lot going on in the scene. I love the fact that they are, there is no dialogue. It's all in the look, especially that look that they're giving each other at the end oh, yeah. when he's backing away. I don't know what he's thinking, but he's kind of like, this, I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what else to do. It's over. It's all over. And she's looking at him with like, and I think she knows in that moment that this is the end as well for her because there's so, this is a loaded scene in the way that we know as an audience member, I mean, should he have killed her in that moment? Did he, obviously he did the right thing by not killing her morally. However, then he puts the knife down and we're like, Oh, don't yeah. now your fingerprints on the, on the knife. And she's going to do something. We know she's crazy and she's got smarts and tactics and she's going to. And so you're kind of just going, Oh, this is so effed up. And that's the brilliance of it all though. Isn't it? There's so many levels to every single scene and the stakes are so high. It's literally life or death. I certainly would have walked out with the knife. Because he, in every moment, it's like he's in a lose-lose situation no matter what he does. No matter what he does. Mm -hmm. And that's why as an audience, we're always on the hook going, how is he going to get out of this? How's this going to end finally, you know? Yeah, it's crazy because you're still in a sense rooting for him. But he did something wrong. He did something wrong. Yeah. Bottom line, he instigated this. You want her to get her comeuppance. We often say that about the quote-unquote villain in the film. But there's a lot of gray area in this movie. Yes, So much gray. There's nothing black and white about it. And although she is the quote-unquote antagonist, you have to have some kind of sympathy for her. She is not well. She's an ill person. I don't. Did you have anything else for favorite moments or scenes? No, I think we're good. And I know right. there's stuff yeah, that we let's probably keep it rolling then. didn't mention, but we'll get to some of that stuff. Not to worry. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to our Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have knife yes. holes. And anything that doesn't have the knife holes, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. So I didn't really have any Swiss cheese. I had a bunch of complaints. How about with you, Jason? Yeah, same here. No holes. This movie is is really, really well crafted. So I have some kind of complaints slash questions about some right. things. Did you want to start off with this? Yeah, my first question is, um, what happened to Dan's friend Jimmy? We have that scene where yeah. Dan tells Jimmy everything that is going on. And then that was the last we saw of Jimmy. Yeah. He disappears. Good old Stuart Pankin. Is that Stuart, his name? Yeah. Pankin. Yeah. He was a, a great character actor that would pop up in the 80s. Uh, it was fun to see him. Yes, he. I had the same thought, Bill Bant. He disappears. Yeah, you would think he would somehow help in some other regard going on, and nope, that was it. He's in the first half of the movie. We don't see him again in the second half. He's just a loose end. You would think, and I was led to believe, or not in my own mind, when seeing the, basically, it's like the confessional in the back of the library, when Dan confesses all of his sins to Jimmy, played by Stuart Pankin. And you're like, okay, Stuart Pankin, his character Jimmy, is a lawyer too, so he'll somehow find a way to help Dan. But he never comes back. No. 
okay, there's a reason for this scene. Right. It's not just for Dan to get it off his chest and to kind of realize, oh, oh, and it's the reveal that he had called Alex's doctor to confirm she was actually pregnant. You know, that information is revealed in that little scene. But why do this if Jimmy's character doesn't use this information? Right. He's basically just recapping the first half of the movie for for all of us that for some reason maybe fell asleep in the theater. I don't know. In case you went to the bathroom. Here you go. This is what you missed. Dan's going to be a dad. Okay, so we didn't mention this in scenes, but so we had the big climax scene in the bathroom where Alex shows up at the house and it looks like she's going to murder Beth in the bathroom. And then Dan comes to save the day. He chokes out Alex and you think, oh, she's dead, drowned her in the bathtub. And then she reappears. Lo and behold, Ellen shoots her just like she said she was going to kill her earlier in the movie, which was a great moment. But all of this is going on. And they have a little six-year-old in the house. You're telling me she didn't hear anything. You (laughs) would think she would almost come out and then that would somehow play into the scene. But it doesn't. I mean, I know my my kids sleep through some noise, but (laughs) I don't think they're sleeping through this one. No, there's way too much commotion. I mean, I'm glad she stayed in her room, but uh, she didn't need to see any of that. But imagine she showed up at the very end, just like when Alex's body is just like sliding down the side of the showered tub just all bleeding imagine how traumatizing that would be oh my god yeah like as if the kid's not traumatized enough Mm -hmm. right uh it's terrible yeah i agree just thinking about if i were dan and i had an affair it's the day after the affair okay so he engages in this affair with alex on a saturday now it's the day after it's sunday and he's got to call his wife right so he's had some time And he calls Beth the day after. And I'm like, dude, you got to come up with a better excuse or be more prepared than just stuttering about, "Uh, I had dinner with with Bill. And granted, some of this is for the audience sake. We want to see him kind of stumbling and awkward and it provides some sort of tension. I'm just like, dude, you know you're going to talk to your wife. And she's going to ask you where you were when you didn't answer the phone the night before. You're fumbling for an excuse, man. Yeah, agreed. Come on. I felt bad for that dog. I thought he was going to come home and like the dog crapped all over the place or something like that. You got to get home, man. You got to walk that dog. Quincy. Great dog. Here's just a goofy little nitpick because I didn't really have that much for this movie. So they buy Ellen a bunny and bring the bunny to the house. Right. All I have is a bunny in a cage. Where's, Where's the bunny supplies? Yeah. You know, when you, when you go buy a pet, man, there's an investment. You're not just buying the animal. You got to buy like the bedding for the pet. You got to buy the food. It needs a water bottle. This The rabbit does. Come on, man. You can't just come in a cage and yeah. the rabbit. Bunny supplies. Nah, yeah. Poor bunny. I mean, yeah. And by the way, speaking of for the listeners, we understand that the boiling bunny scene is hugely iconic the lasting effect that this film has. I mean, it's the one scene everyone will immediately either go to or talk about uh, when the title of this film comes up in conversation. So don't think we haven't thought about it. We just, I think like Bill had mentioned earlier, didn't want to mention maybe the most obvious scene and our favorite scene. So I just wanted to say that. If you don't know about the boiling bunny scene from Fatal Attraction, look it up. It's upsetting. We're trusting that most of the listeners out there are aware. Right, yeah. That's it. And it's just crazy how that scene is just so iconic. It was really, really 
yeah, disturbing at that time. Right. Yeah, exactly. Is. For that, it for that is. time. And it's, it be, and especially again, because of the editing, the way it's shot. And I'm not going to just break it all down right now, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you see the shot of Ellen running with excitement towards the bunny cage outside. Meanwhile, Beth is inside and she knows that there's a pot on the stove that's boiling over with water and it's curious and the tension's building, the music is building and there's the inner cutting. And then Ellen arrives at the empty bunny cage, no bunny. She freaks out at the same time Beth opens the boiling pot and the bunny's in the pot and it freaks you the fuck out. It's upsetting. Jason, way to not break down that scene. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Now I started thinking about it. I'm like, man, it's a brilliantly... Because the point being that I was saying it was upsetting. It was really upsetting then, like in 1987. But even when I watched it today, because the masterful filmmaking and the way that the scene unfolds with the editing, it's still really upsetting today. So that's your complaint. That's still upsetting today. We'll find that in the complaint. That's still still upsetting today. I'm mad because it's upsetting. upsetting Right. There we go. That's technically. So technically. Yeah, we turned it into a complaint. (laughs) Anything else for complaints? Oh, here's one. I I would have liked one more scene with Beth dealing with the weight of Dan's affair. My complaint, and I understand why it feels a little glossed over in this film, I think Beth forgives Dan a little bit too quickly. I agree with that. I understand a lot happens. It's a huge thing that he had this affair and that he got this woman pregnant. And she reacts accordingly in the confession scene when he tells her, I think it's a great scene. I think Ann Archer is great in this movie. And by the way, she was nominated for best supporting actress for her performance in this film. But then after the car accident, she kind of forgives him right away. And it's just like, I would have liked one more scene where Beth is really either letting Dan have it or giving him shit. Yeah. She kicks him out of the house temporarily, but that's a, that's just, yeah, she should let him twist in the wood a little bit. Yeah, I do kind of laugh because I figure if that was me in that situation and I had to tell my wife that and she asked me, did you have an affair? I don't even think I'd get the yeah out. And next thing I know, I would wake up six months later from a coma in the hospital. So the fact he even got that much out, I was impressed. I was like, that's a one understanding woman. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. That's I'm just like I, all these images are running through my head of Hillary knocking you out. You're in a coma. Then you wake up six months later and then she's still leaning over you just like with this stare. Just being like, see, that's what happens. That's what happens, Bill. Yeah. Did you learn your lesson? Anything else for complaints? No, no. Let's keep it rolling. So let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, right. we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films. An actor making their big screen debut or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Who did you decide to choose for, hey, it's that actor? I decided to go with Lois Smith, who plays the role of Martha, Dan Gallagher's secretary. And Lois Smith is best known for her roles in Twister, Minority Report, and Lady Bird. But I personally will always know her from the role as Meg from Twister. Uh, That's kind of where I first, I should say, that Lois Smith came on my radar. I loved her in Twister. She's the sweet older woman that welcomes the the, the tornado hunting crew, which is like Bill Paxton, Helen Hunt, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And she welcomes them all into her house, and she feeds them these like delicious steaks. 
That scene, by the way, always makes me hungry <laughs> when they go to her house in Twister. I love that movie. So Lois Smith, she's still working. And she recently also was in an episode of Ray Donovan and had a role in Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch. And she was even in an episode of the recent iteration of Gossip Girl. Uh, Lois Smith once taught acting at Juilliard. She studied with Lee Strasberg at the Actors Studio. She's been nominated twice for a Tony Award for Best Actress, and she won the Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Play called The Inheritance in 2020. Lois Smith was born in 1930. She's 92 years old. Still doing it. Lois Smith. She's kind of has that grandmotherly look, very warm feeling. I, I enjoy her whenever I, I see her. In a wow. Film. Good call, Jay. I didn't even consider thinking of her for a handsome actor. I didn't recognize her from any, anything, to be honest. Or I just didn't pay that oh, much attention okay. to her. I almost have to go back and just did see Did you her recognize? Gag. I mean, now that I mentioned a couple of the films. Now that you did. I was like, okay. oh, geez. Yeah, that's certainly a handsome actor. Good call on that one. Yeah, absolutely. So I went with Ellen Foley who played Hildy, the wife of Jimmy, Dan's co-worker at the film. Ellen made her film debut in 1979's Hair and then had bit parts in such 80s movies as Tootsie, The King of Comedy, Cocktail, and Married to the Mob. Ellen may be best known as Bill Young, who played the public defender on Night Court for season two. Um, she only played that role for one season as she was replaced by Marky Post because that was the producer's original choice for that role. But Marky Post was contractually obligated to the fall guy. And once that contract was over, Ellen was out and Marky Post was in. Outside of acting, Ellen Foley was a singer and released five solo albums. She is supposedly the basis of The Clash's 1981 song, Should I Stay or Should I Go, because of her rocky relationship with The Clash lead singer Mick Jones. And I'm sure most of our listeners know the song, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, by Meatloaf. Who sang the female vocals on that track? That was Ellen Foley. I did not know that. Learned something on my own podcast. So that is my headset actor. Absolutely. Yeah, I saw that in the research, too. That's, that's really cool. That's great, man. She is a bit part in it, but yeah, she is, she's somebody. Yeah, I was a big fan of Night Court, so I kind of remember her, yeah. That, yeah, I definitely didn't know. Yeah, That's cool. Very flirtatious relationship with Judge Harry T. Stone, played by Harry Anderson. <laughs> All right, so that takes us to facts and trivia. Um, what are some facts and trivia we have about Fatal Attraction? All right, so the film was adapted by James Dearden, with a little assistance from Nicholas Meyer. James Dearden had made a short film in 1980 called Diversion for British television, and that's what this film was adapted from. Now, in Nicholas Meyer's book entitled The View from the Bridge, Mem Memories of Star Trek and a Life in Hollywood, he explains that in the late, in late 1986, producer Stanley R. Jaff Jaffe asked him to look at the script developed by Dearden. And Meyer wrote a four-page memo making suggestions, including a new ending. A few weeks later, Meyer met with director Adrian Lyne and gave him some additional suggestions. Ultimately, Meyer was asked to redraft the script on the basis of his suggestions, which ended up being the shooting script. Credit goes to both James Dearden and Nicholas Meyer. Yeah, I didn't know this was based off a short film. Yeah, right? Called Diversion. That's why it's an adapted Yeah, I was like, play. what is it adapted from? And then when I did the research, I was like, oh, that's crazy. Right. 
Yes, the big trivia about this movie. So after poor audience reaction to the original ending, it was decided that the ending be reshot. So early on, Dan and Alex listened to Madame Butterfly at Alex's house, and Dan recalls first going to see the opera as a little boy and how scared he was by the suicide at the end. So this foreshadows the film's original ending in which Alex herself commits suicide to the tune of Madame Butterfly, no less, and frames Dan for the murder. However, the scene was cut from the original film. Glenn Close was opposed to redoing the ending, but eventually felt she owed it to everyone else to do it. Close is quoted as saying, the original ending was a gorgeous piece of film noir. She kills herself, but makes sure that his prints are all over the knife and he gets arrested. He knows he didn't do it, but he is going to jail anyway. Glenn Close was so angry over plans to reshoot the ending that for two weeks, she refused to do it. And when she confided in her former co-star, William Hurt, about the reshoot, Hurt said to her, you made your point. Now it's your responsibility to buck up and just do it. To this day, she prefers the original version, feeling that Alex was more suicidal than psychotic. But audiences wanted some kind of cathartic ending. So she went back months later and shot the ending that's in the movie now. Adrian Lyne wasn't keen on having to redo it either but wouldn't have done it unless test audiences didn't hate the original ending so much. So if you have not seen the original ending, we will put a link to that into the show notes so you can see it. It is very interesting, and you can definitely see how the movie sets up to that moment at the end. Mm-hmm. Great stuff, man. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that later. But continuing on with fun facts and trivia, producers Sherry Lansing and Stanley R. Jaffe both had serious doubts about casting Glenn Close because they did not think she could be sexual enough for the role of Alex. I am, by the way, reading this from Wikipedia. Barbara Hershey was originally considered for the role. Several actresses auditioned for the part, but they were almost all turned down. Close was persistent. And after meeting with Jaffe several times in New York, she was asked to fly out to L.A. to read with Michael Douglas in front of Adrian Lyne and Lansing. Before the audition, she let her naturally fizzy hair go wild because she was impatient at putting it up. And she wore a slimming black dress she thought made her look fabulous to the audition. This impressed Lansing because Glenn Close came in looking completely different. Right away, she was into the part. And the rest is history. Uh, so going back to the reshoots. So while reshooting the, the new ending, Glenn Close got a concussion when her head was uh, whacked against a mirror. And while being treated at the hospital, she discovered she was pregnant with her daughter, Annie Stark. Crazy. Committed to the role. <laughs> Michael Douglas was also working on the film Wall Street at the same time as this film. To avoid a schedule conflict, Douglas would alternate between each film during the week. Can you imagine going back and forth between Dan Gallagher and Gordon Gecko? Polar opposites. Your character is so different from one another. Crazy. And uh, hey, you got the Oscar for one, so he made it work. Yeah, not too shabby. So here's my last fact and trivia. So yes, that is a young Jane Krokowski as little Ellen Gallagher's babysitter. She got the walk-on part four years after playing Cousin Eddie's daughter, Vicky, in National Lampoon's Vacation. And here we go, those six degrees. Two years after Fatal Attraction, Ellen Lantern, who played Ellen, would play Eddie's daughter, Ruby Sue, in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> That's crazy. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. That's pretty cute. Yeah, it technically makes the actresses on-screen sisters. I love that. 
this is a little interesting. The character of Alex Forrest, played by Glenn Close, has been discussed by psychiatrists and film experts and has been used as a film illustration for the condition Borderline Personality Disorder. The character displays the behaviors of impulsivity, emotional lability, frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, frequent severe anger, self-harming, and changing from idealization to devaluation. These traits are consistent with the diagnosis, but not to this degree. Generally, aggression tends to be towards the self rather than others. Now also, as referenced in Orit Kamir's Every Breath You Take, Stalking Narratives and the Law, Glenn Close's character Alex is quite deliberately made to be an erotomaniac. The reports are that Close consulted three separate shrinks for an inner profile of her character who is meant to be suffering from a form of an obsessive condition known as Declarembolt's syndrome. Now, the term bunny boiler is used to describe an obsessive spurned woman deriving from the scene where it is discovered that Alex has boiled the family's pet rabbit. I'm glad you read all that. Yeah, well, also to top it off here, erotomania also known as Declarembault syndrome, is a relatively rare disorder characterized by the delusion that a person is in love with the patient. The object of the delusion commonly has a higher social status than the patient and usually remains unchanged. Wow. I don't, it's just some interesting stuff there because there's a lot of discussion, I guess, or there was afterward a little controversy, I suppose you could say, about her character and some sympathy for what she was going on, or maybe that she was unfairly characterized right? because of her disorder. Yeah. I do remember the research that she did take the script to psychiatrists and ask like, would someone actually do this? And to some degree. So some of it believes some of it could happen, like but you said to, to the extreme. Right. And in modern times, Glenn Close has said that this was like an interview in 2013. She reads the script differently because of, the fact that it's now more looked at as a mental disorder as well that never came up really originally right. in the late 80s. And that's, I think, extremely topical, especially oh, yeah. today with the, all the mental health Oh, yeah, issues, exactly. Uh, especially how we viewed Adam back then and, and view him now. And we still have a long uh -huh. way to go. All right, switching gears. Uh, let's move on to box office. So Fatal Attraction was released on September 18th, 1987 in 758 theaters. On an estimated budget of $14 million, it grossed $156.6 million domestically and $163.5 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $320.1 million. The film opened number one at the box office and held that spot for an additional seven weeks. Fatal Attraction's ticket sales actually increased during its first four weeks of release. Between week one and week two, it grew 1%. Between week two and week three, 21%. And between week three and four, another 13%. A rarity at the box office. Fatal Attraction was the second highest grossing movie released in the United States in 1987. Awesome. So moving on to reviews. When growing up in the 80s, we'd watch At The Movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of Fatal Attraction was split. Gene enjoyed the movie, crediting the script for not cheating the audience and praised the performances of Glenn Close, Michael Douglas, and Ann Archer. Roger felt betrayed and cheated by the ending. He felt the tone of the movie changes to a Hollywood formula horror movie during the last 30 minutes. Hmm. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 75%. 
and it has an IMDb rating of 6.9. So this takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Fatal Attraction? Here's an additional thought. I had forgotten how much I hate ringing telephones. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of ringing telephones in this. Yes, there is. And I even hate it today when someone's cell phone has a ringtone that is the classic ringing telephone noise. It drives me nuts. Wow, that's interesting. But that being said, I do love, this is a common trope in like horror films or a common used film technique or camera move is when a phone is ringing and the camera slowly pushes in on the telephone. Oh, yeah. Love it. Always love it. It works every time. Definitely. Like, ooh, who's on the other end of that telephone? Who's calling? Yeah, especially when they move into the new house and the phone, Mm -hmm. it's just sitting on the stairs. That's actually the shot I'm talking about. Yeah. So here's a question, and it's a little tongue-in-cheek. So was Beth screaming when she found the boiling bunny because the bunny was in the pot or because she scorched her hand removing the lid? (laughs) You know, I actually thought about that when she went to reach for the lid. I was like, oh, do you need like a hand warmer or what do you call those? Like a pot holder. Duh. There you go. That's yeah. what it's called, Jason. A pot holder. Yeah, because I was like, oh, that's got to be hot. Yeah. I think it's because of the bunny, but that's a funny question because that thought crossed my mind. I almost put that under complaints. That totally works. Hey, after Alex picks up young Ellen from school and takes her to the boardwalk and the amusement park, and then she brings her home and drops her off. I mean, she drops her off at home, right? Because obviously now Beth is in the hospital as a result of the car accident and Dan is off at a hotel. Did Ellen... The six-year-old Ellen have the wherewithal to call her grandparents from her house? What does she do? She just moved there. She's home alone then. Alex drops her off and nobody's at home. So she must have called her grandparents, right? Because in the next scene, we see her with, or after that, she's with her grandparents. And I'm like, oh, she must have called them. That's pretty savvy for a six-year-old. Or when Beth calls the police, maybe they show up at the house and find her there. There's going to be a moment where Ellen is at that house by herself. That would be pretty scary for a six-year-old. Yeah. Not knowing really her surroundings. She's probably only lived there for no more than a month. Because that actually leads into my next question. Yeah. Okay. So how much time do you think passes through this whole ordeal from the the moment that Dan meets Alex at that party to the the very end when they Mm -hmm. kill Alex? Great question. I think it's months. Yeah, I do too. But how many? Because immediately I was thinking of when Alex reveals that she's pregnant, I'm going, well, there has to be some time that has passed since they they had sex. So in order for her to, maybe she realizes that she's late and then she takes the pregnancy test and she, that's probably close to a few weeks, a month in there. Just say best case scenario, a month and a half right there. And then we know because of the phone calls and... There is a definitely a passage of time. They've got to sell their apartment before moving into the house. I, I'm saying it's no less than three months. Okay. I was thinking around four. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. it doesn't really- That sh- seems a little more practical. It doesn't really show, like you don't see holidays happening or any of that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, Ellen's going to school. So this is either happening in the fall or the spring. It didn't seem quite mm-hmm. winterish for that area. So I like you really analyzing. Oh, you know, I love that that stuff. But the thought crossed my mind, too. It's like, how long, like, how long does this story take place over how long of a time period? I don't know. But yeah, I think you're right. It's probably around four months. I think that sounds realistic. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was longer, but uh, if anybody knows, let us know. Break it down for us, please. 
I love the callback to the kettle at the end, which now completely like it's symbolized something completely different. And it happens in the middle of the attack on Beth when Alex is in the bathroom and attacks Beth. And then we have the oblivious Dan downstairs and the boiling pot is happening again, which now symbolizes something totally different because this, you know, everything's coming to a climax here and culminating here and boiling over literally because initially I had talked about the shot of the boiling pot right after the sex scene, after the initial sex and the affair. And now at the end, it has a totally different meaning. I thought that was kind of cool. And also, yeah, I love the final shot of the movie on the picture frame of the family. For me, I had this take on it. It really left me pondering what will become of this family after something such so traumatic like this has happened. It's something you, you rarely see, the aftermath. And there's no space for it in this kind of movie. But maybe the aftermath is a different movie, and it's simply called Aftermath. Right. Because this would linger for a while. Between the infidelity, the affair, the kid is seen too much, knows too much. Between the boiling rabbit and the uh, her parents fighting in front of her and all that stuff. I mean. You know what scene made me kind of wince in this movie? Hmm. Was the end scene when Alex is confronting Beth and talking to her about wanting to be with Dan and Beth should be in the life. Mm-hmm. And she's taking the knife and she's digging it into her. Oh, God. Yeah, that. Yeah. I remember that making me wince. I kind of forgot about that until you mentioned the teapot thing. I was like, oh, yeah, she's upstairs, like digging that knife into her leg or thigh or whatever. And yeah, I remember that bothering me. So effective. So effective. It's almost like you have like this psychosomatic reaction, like you feel Mm -hmm. it when she's just kind of picking. She's kind of picking at her leg with the tip of the knife and it starts bleeding and it cuts through the material. It's like, yeah, I hate it. Here's a question for you, Bill Bant. Can you name another one of your favorite erotic thrillers? Slash romantic thrillers, slash neo noir thrillers. Got some choices for me? Because this film is really got in 1987. Now, this was not the first, obviously, erotic thriller or noir film, but this really set the template for a lot of films that followed. So I was curious as if you had another, you don't have to list them off or just, or your absolute number one. I'm just asking uh, for your shout out to one of your favorites. Mm. I mean, the one that's compared to a lot is Play Misty for me with Clint Eastwood. Right. Which did come before this film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll throw a couple out there. I'm a big presumed innocent guy. Uh, that's a good one. Obviously, I'm a Harrison Ford guy, but shout out to Marwan Abdurazak because we know he loves presumed innocent. Bonnie Bedelia. Great Bonnie Bedelia performance. Yes. Yeah. 1990s, only a few years after Fatal Attraction. Another one I do like and I've revisited multiple times is Unfaithful because I'm definitely a Diane Lane guy as well. I've not seen that one. It's not perfect, but it's good. Richard Gere. Last question for you, Bill Bant, that I have at least. Okay. Is the alternate ending better in your opinion? I think when I saw it the first time, I said no, but now it's closer because, yes, at an audience, you want to see... Alex get her comeuppance, but at the same time, then Dan kind of gets off scot-free outside of the fact that his wife now knows about the affair, but she takes him back. So he almost gets away with it. Whereas with Mm -hmm. the alternate ending, he's got to sweat this out a little bit, but you don't get the comeuppance that you want. But the story itself actually flows better into the original ending than it does the reshot ending. So I don't think I'm really giving you an answer. No, it's hard. It's tough. You can go back and forth. I agree with you. I now prefer the original ending, the alternate okay. ending, 
not the one that you see today in the movie. Only because I agree completely that it flows better. Uh, you're right. Because I almost was going to break it down. Like, it could be a complaint. Like, it's really reckless of Dan Gallagher, uh, not just to have the affair in the first place, but to go over and to attack Alex. We understand that he is full of rage because Alex had kidnapped his daughter and indirectly caused the car accident that Beth had. But so he goes over to her apartment in a rage and attacks her. And I'm like, well, that's really stupid because now it looks like, you know, she could claim all kinds of assault and put him away. And then he leaves the knife on top of all of it with his fingerprints all over it. So, yeah, it would just the the original ending when the cops show up and it looks as if, yeah, he's going to be framed for murder. It totally makes sense. And I just, from an artistic standpoint, I prefer the original ending now because the way it's cut, the looks again, the glances, the performances, when it cuts to, you have Ann Archer trying to find the, the lawyer's phone number frantically going through the book because you've got to get Dan's defense together. And then she finds the cassette tape. She just doesn't find it outright. She f happens upon it and then plays it. And then it exoner basically exonerates Dan. And then it cuts to freaking Glenn Close cutting her own yeah. throat. It's brutal. Yeah, that is a squeamish. I, did, I forgot about that. If I had seen this before, I'd forgotten about that part. It's like, oof. And you just see the blood start flowing down her neck. And it's like, oh, my God, that's how it's going to end. So, and I think it's a sign of the times too, because when you had like, and I understand Roger Ebert's complaint, because I, I do agree with him on that. The movie goes Hollywood at the end, but that's what the people right. wanted. That's what they wanted back then. And I think it would be received differently today in 2023. I think so too. I think what I don't like about the original ending is that you see there is an out. That she does find the tape mm. and she hears it and Alice confesses that she'd probably commit suicide. I think it was more ambiguous that there's a chance he's going to go to jail for this. I think right. I would have liked it more. But I think because you know he's going to get out because of the tape. If he just pulls away, she Good kills call. himself. Call. And you're like, oh shit, he's going to jail and he didn't do the murder. I think I would have liked that better. Yeah, it's kind of like, wish there was one more scene. I want to know exactly what happened after this. I think sometimes an ambiguous, in, or, yeah, ambiguous ending can be a lot more effective. So let us know, folks. Uh, look it up. Look up the uh, alternate original ending on YouTube. We'll link it in the show notes so you can watch it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let us know what you think if you have not ever seen it before. Any more additional thoughts and questions? I think that's it. So let us move on to our rating so, Jason, on a scale of one to five boiled bunnies, what do you give Fatal Attraction? Hey, man, maybe I'm still riding the high coming off of the, the revisitation of Fatal Attraction. I'm giving this five boiled wow. bunnies. I loved this movie. It's excellent. I mean, like, it's just masterful. You can take issue with the ending versus the original ending. However... It's still, the ending is very entertaining <laughs> and it's, you know, there's some common tropes that are still masterfully executed and the performances are on par. Glenn Close is putting on a clinic, the direction, the lighting. I love the haze throughout this film. Like that was their specific job was just to smoke cigarettes on set, just to puff away and then step off camera when they rolled. Because it just looks like this. there's this great sexy haze that's over everything that adds kind of a, a diffusion to everything, a soft lens almost to everything. And so there's a tone, there's pace. The editing is brilliant. 
It deserves all accolades for editing. And uh, what else can I say? This movie is scary. It's frightening. And it makes you think. And it is great for discussion. It's wonderful. It's uh, And uh, it's been a pleasure to talk about it. So this movie is just exemplary. It's really, really effective. Wow. I must feel like I'm going too low because I was I was giving it four. Hey, oh yeah, still no four out of five is great. Yeah, the performances are great. If you have not seen it, that's certainly a check it out. This movie still kind of resonates today, and uh, if you're a newlywed and you want to stray, just uh, watch this movie. See what the consequences, what your actions could be. So uh, it is one possible, <laughs> right? Exactly yeah. one one of one of many, but uh, yeah, it definitely had such a huge impact back then in the eighties, and I I think it's one that certainly holds up now. Yeah, so four for me, five for you. Damn, that's a lot of money that we just boiled. <laughs> I just love that. Like you said, if you think about cheating on your newlywed, like as if like I can imagine like a newlywed, like a, the the uh, the wife or significant other going to their partner. Um, in case you're having any thoughts of having an affair or you know sleeping with somebody else, cheating on me, uh, just watch this. Yeah, and imagine me as the Glenn Close there you character. Go. Because that's what's going to happen. Must watch before you get married. This should be part of your married class or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> your film list you put together. Yes. Like- <laughs> Movies should watch together before you get married. Before we get yep. married. That's great. That's funny. Right on, man. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcasts at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at all80smoviespodcast. Catch us on TikTok at all80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. In our next episode, we will be discussing Little Shop of Horrors, starring Rick Moranis and Ellen Green. We hope you join us again. Have a totally great week, everyone. Bring the dog. I love animals. I'm a great cook. Come on. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.